0: Welcome to If Then, a show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will
1: O'Rainis. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, December 11th.
0: On today's show, we'll talk about the latest round of Tech CEO Goes to Washington. On Tuesday morning, that CEO was Google's Sundar Pichai, who appeared before the House Judiciary Committee, was asked about data privacy, location tracking, Google's plans in China, and of course, Republicans' favorite tech topic, conservative bias. We'll talk about what we learned from the hearing and what we wish Congress might have asked the tech CEO instead.
1: Then we'll be speaking with two people who have been working to organize amongst workers in Amazon fulfillment centers in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One is a founder with Awud, Nemo Omar. She's been working with the primarily East African communities that work in the Amazon warehouses there on a campaign to collectively advocate for better working conditions. We'll also be joined by a worker at one of those fulfillment centers in the Minneapolis area, William Stolz. We'll ask him about his job at the warehouse and why he's joining his fellow workers in organizing for change.
0: And as always, we'll end with don't close my tabs, a couple of the best things we saw online this week. That's all coming up on today's If Then. All right, we want to start this week with a call out to our listeners. We want to hear from you. Broadly, we're curious about how technology has impacted your life this year. So we have a couple specific questions. If you feel so moved, we'd be interested in hearing your answers. You can email us a voice memo of your response. Um, Send that to ifthen at slate.com, and we may use your comments in an upcoming show. Or just a regular email is fine, too. You can tweet to ifthenpod if a voice memo feels like too much work.
1: Here are our questions. First, I want to know, has the news about Cambridge Analytica or Russian hacking or hate groups or any of the data breaches or any of the awful things that have come out about social media companies, particularly Facebook, inspired you to leave Facebook or use it differently? And if so, why and how? I want to know how the news has affected your relationship to this company that kind of is so much a part of how we communicate these days for so many people.
0: Second, we'd love for you to tell us about either a piece of technology you decided was essential this year or one that you decided you could live without. That would be something separate from Facebook, I guess. It could be an app, a product, or a website. But tell us why it either captivated you or the opposite of captivated you.
1: Again, we want you all to weigh in on these questions. To have your comments featured in an upcoming show, please email us, at slate.com. Thanks so much. We really look forward to hearing what y'all think.
0: All right, April, let's start with a bit of news. Tell us what's going on with Uber and Lyft this week.
1: Sure. Both of the ride-hailing companies did file to go public last week. Uh, Uber, once publicly traded, to be clear, (laughs) could soar to a valuation of $120 billion. It's currently around $70 billion in valuation. Uh, Lyft is currently worth about $15 billion. Uh, Lyft is not as global as Uber and doesn't have as many other services, which is one of the reasons why, you know, it's not valued as highly Um, but, uh, but yeah, these are big numbers and, you know, these companies could signal a wave of other companies that have been holding out on going public like Airbnb or, uh, you know, Slack, for example, uh, that, that, that could happen next year as well.
0: Yeah, it's been, it feels like it's been a while since we've had a big U.S. tech IPO or at least a cluster of them like this. Uber was one of those companies that just was able to obtain so much money privately through venture capital that it seemed like it didn't really need to go public, uh, uh, at least until it really wanted to. Why do you think they're both doing it at the same time? Is that just a a coincidence?
1: Well, it's a race, right? And so whoever goes public first is going to be the first to attract that investor money that's been hoping to – cash in and get get kind of investment in on the ride hailing startup scene and so if lyft goes public first then you know investors are gonna go after lyft first and and you know they might capture a lot of that investor interest before uber hits the market and it could you know affect uber's valuation later on so it's 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 a race to be the first to get that investor money is really what it is uh but you know it's 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 so interesting to see these companies you know talk about going public and, you know, being worth all this money, because we have to remember that they hemorrhage a ton of money. I mean, I can't stress enough, Uber is not profitable by any stretch. In just the last quarter, you which know, is just, just a three-month period, it lost over a billion dollars this year. So uh, so it's it's definitely um, it's such a strange economy to watch and track. And, you know, I think we we will see a lot of questions emerge, like what this will mean or won't mean for drivers and things like that. So something that we're certainly going to keep watching closely. And, and this is something that may play out uh, in the first half of, of next year. And it seems like it will be a bit of a race. And, you know, Will, beyond Uber and, and Lyft, and I actually took a Lyft to get here, to full disclosure, right? This has become such an integral part of how we get around cities for many people. I got uh, here in a
0: Lyft, too, actually. Today.
1: Okay, okay, there we go. And you know why aren't we using Uber? That's another question to ask. But, uh, but, but we won't get into that now. I want to hear what happened this morning in Washington D.C. Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, made his debut at a congressional hearing, right at the House Judiciary Committee. How did that? Go? Was it? Is it over? Is it still going? These things can go on forever, right? This
0: one was was mercifully short compared to some of the nice. earlier tech hearings this year. Nice. Um, and yeah, and so Sundar Pichai appeared today before a House committee. This was after the Senate had asked. First, Larry Page and then Sundar Pichai to come in September alongside Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg and Twitter's Jack Dorsey. And Google declined the invitation or they tried to send their attorney instead. And so the the Senate committee at that time went with an empty chair in Google's place, which was a pretty memorable move on their yeah. part.
1: I thought uh, that was I thought that was uh, actually a really good kind of thing that the, the Congress did. Um, they were addressing the empty chair, too, throughout that hearing, if I remember
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like that as well. Um, But Pichai came this time and he was very, very matter of fact um, in his his answers and his responses. The questions from from Congress ran a bit of a gamut. The most common question was from Republican lawmakers pressing Google on how it allegedly biases its product in various ways against conservatives. I didn't hear a lot of interest from conservative lawmakers in how it might bias how its product might be biased against other people which is a topic that we've talked about on if then when we had uh, uh, professor Sophia uh, Umoja Noble talking about how Google's search results often marginalize people who are uh, who are not in positions of privilege people of color um, and and other minority groups but uh, so Pichai did his best to sort of fend off those questions there was one that that sort of had him on the ropes which was that was when Republican Representative Jim Jordan was pressing him on some emails from the head of Google's Multicultural Marketing Department talking about Google's efforts to help turn out the Latino vote. Pichai didn't seem to have the, the facts in front of him on that, and he, he wasn't able to give a persuasive response. But we've seen this again and again where where the biggest agenda of Republicans on Capitol Hill when it comes to tech is to sort of – to lodge their grievances about the ways in which they feel that tech companies are downgrading conservative views or banning conservative voices or that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, so they're really fixated on kind of the polarizing political questions that, you know, we don't really have a lot of evidence for when it comes to, you know, claims of conservative bias. But what we have seen on Google though are issues with how its, you know, search algorithm Does and on YouTube rather as well uh, does surface you know conspiratorial answers to questions that you know any everyday person might have or student might have whether it's about you know climate change or whether it's uh, about the Holocaust Uh, I think it was just last year or late 2016 when Google was uh, surfacing kind of Holocaust denial answers about questions uh, regarding the Holocaust in its search algorithm I'm curious if uh, if if things like that. That came up. And and what your sense is about how well Congress understands how search works, because, you know, we did see some uh, uninformed questions questioning Mark Zuckerberg. But my sense is that Congress probably understands social media uh, a bit better than it understands search. And I understand social media more than search because, you know, you have to have some literacy to use social media. Search is kind of a black box.
0: Yeah, I think collectively the Facebook scandals have educated us all a little bit better about how social media works and how the algorithms work and all that sort of thing. And you're right, I think that has probably happened less so with Google search to the point that uh, Pichai at one point was trying to explain to uh, one of his conservative interlocutors – why searching "idiot" on Google might turn up Donald Trump's name in the search results. <laughs> he like had to walk through why that how that could happen without some liberal That's at funny. Google intentionally programming it to to tie the word "idiot" to Donald Trump. But yeah, there was one question about a bias that that we have seen a lot of evidence for over the past couple of years, which is in YouTube's algorithm. It's the bias toward extremism, and you know you kind of go down these rabbit holes. You ask a question like you know about Americans landing on the moon, and the next thing you know, you've got like flat earth videos and all these kind of wild conspiracy videos. Um, and Pachai did not have this. The question was from uh, Representative Jamie Raskin of, of Maryland. Pachai did not have a good answer. He gave this sort of anodyne response about how, um, you know, well, with our growth comes responsibility. We're committed doing to doing better. I mean, we basically just didn't have an answer. And, and, and he was able to get away with that because that wasn't at the top of, of Congress's agenda in this particular session.
1: You know, finally, I'm, I'm curious uh, about whether or not uh, any members of Congress expressed interest in antitrust or limiting Google's power by kind of limiting the stranglehold it has on so many aspects of, you know, the Internet market.
0: Yeah, I didn't hear a ton of interest from Congress in antitrust questions, but there was definitely one person at the hearing who was very interested in that. There was this activist who attends congressional hearings dressed as the Monopoly mascot, you know, Rich Uncle Pennybags.
1: Yeah, with for the, sure. With the
0: top hat and the mustache. And this person, uh, I guess their name is Ian Madrigal. They, they sat right behind Pichai, so you could see them on TV and on the live stream. They started out with one mus- mustache, and then the mustache got bigger. Then the mustaches started multiplying. So anybody watching, then there, some, there was a veiled reference to, to Google being a monopoly there. But there wasn't a lot of serious discussion of, of antitrust matters.
1: That's too bad, because, you know, when I think about Google, I think about all the companies that are kind of under the umbrella when it comes to Google Docs, when it, or not companies, but components, right, where, like, they're the go-to default thing that everybody uses. Gmail, Android, X, which is kind of spun out under Alphabet, but there's so many divisions under Alphabet that seems like, you know, would be ripe for kind of separating in some way. Uh, And the thing that kind of brings so many of the products at Google together is that they share the massive amount of Data that Google collects on its users from from both uh, you know using search and then we put our queries into Google, but also from Gmail and shopping and all kinds of stuff that we do across the web. And I'm curious what Congress said about privacy. Were there questions about Google's data collection? So we do not have an overarching privacy law or a suite of privacy laws like they do in the in Europe that were passed this year.
0: There actually were some some questions about privacy some of them sharper than others. There were a couple of them that really gave fodder to critics of Congress for mockery. One of them, we can play a clip for you. It was from Representative Ted Poe, Republican from Texas. And he was really intent on grilling Pichai and just nailing him down on this question of whether Google is tracking him around the room on his phone. And so he was uh, being very dramatic about it and saying it's either yes or no. It's not a trick question. So Google knows that I am moving over there. It's it's not a trick question. You know, you make $100 million a year, you ought to be able to answer that question. Does Google know through this phone that I am moving over there and sit next to Mr. Johnson, which would make him real
2: nervous? It's his question. I, it's yes or no. I wouldn't be able to answer without looking at... Uh, you can't say yes or no. Uh, without knowing more details, sir. Uh.
0: Pichai couldn't give an answer. And the reason is because Representative Poe has an iPhone. It's not a Google phone. So, So Sundar Pichai couldn't answer his question without knowing what Google software is installed on that phone, because obviously Google does not make the iPhone.
1: So that definitely gave Pichai an easy out on that very kind of important question, actually. And I, I wish that he didn't just punt that to, to the obvious mistake that the congressperson made. But, but you know, earnestly answered uh, in the framing that that he would be able to answer it in as if it was a question about Android.
0: Yeah, I would have liked him to answer that earnestly, too, because the truth is Google probably is tracking a lot of us, even if we have an iPhone, because we have Google apps on it. Of course, there was a much better framed question from Representative Ted Deutsch of Texas. Um But the the irony was he spent so much time specifying the question that by the time Pichai gave an evasive answer, he had no time to follow up. Uh, And so that was just kind of left hanging as well.
1: Yeah, sometimes these hearings can get kind of operatic if you let the kind of <laughs> confusion from Congress all kind of blur together and, and just take it as, as one large movement. Um, but yeah, it's, it sounds like it went about as expected and not necessarily something that's going to lead to policy change, but hopefully uh, something that will lead to more questioning of this very powerful company in the future.
0: One thing that I wrote about in my slate piece on the hearings today is that this kind of inchoate confusion from members of Congress, it's easy to dismiss or laugh at, but it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, this is how a lot of Americans feel. They don't know exactly how companies like Google and Facebook are compromising their privacy, but they know it's probably happening. And the confusion leads to frustration and it could lead to to outrage and a demand for something to be done. So I could actually see some of these confused Congress people slowly coming around to supporting legislation, if nothing else, that, that, that forces Google to explain what it is doing. You know, GDPR-type legislation that, that uh, requires tech companies to do a better job of explaining exactly what data they're collecting and making sure that customers really understand what they're opting into.
1: You know, asks for transparency have been bipartisan in the past, so this might be something that we could see some organizing around.
0: Yeah, I am more optimistic than I have been in previous hearings that there is that there is going to be movement on this eventually.
1: All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have my interview with labor organizer Nemo Omar and Amazon worker William Stoles. Complaints from workers at Amazon fulfillment centers and from delivery staff have been brewing for years. But this year, as Amazon continues to take leading roles in multiple industries beyond online retail, like cloud hosting and streaming video, and by national chains like Whole Foods, and its owner has risen to become the richest man in the world, there's been an increased focus on the working conditions in the fulfillment centers that are key to Amazon's Prime subscription program, which allows most all orders to be delivered to one's address within two days. That speedy shipping arrangement has led to troubling reports of harsh conditions at Amazon's more than 110 fulfillment centers across the country. According to a new report from the retail, wholesale, and department store union, at least nine workers have died working at Amazon facilities since 2013. There have been reports of Amazon warehouse workers and delivery drivers urinating in bottles for fear of taking breaks, penalization for taking sick days, and the use of digital trackers that time how long it takes each employee to do each task measured down to the second. Amazon itself this year has distributed training materials to managers to discourage unionization. And during Black Friday weekend, workers in fulfillment centers in Spain and Germany protested their working conditions and multiple strikes are planned for this month. Our guests today are Nima Omar and William Stoltz. Nemo Omar is a co-founder of the Awood Center, an organization whose mission is to build economic and political power amongst workers in the East African communities of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And William Stolls works at one of the Amazon fulfillment centers in the Minneapolis area. He's been organizing with his colleagues at the Awood Center, where Amazon has sat down at the table with organized workers and has started to compromise and negotiate on some of their asks. Nemo and William, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us.
2: Glad to be here.
1: Let's start with some quick background. Nemo, you helped found the AWUD Center in 2017. Can you tell us a bit about what Awood is and why y'all formed? And is the campaign Amongst Amazon
3: Employees your first campaign? Awesome, yes. Um, yeah, so the AWUD Center was founded in 2017. Um, it's a community organization whose mission is to build economic and political power amongst workers in the East African community. And yeah, so Amazon is also uh, a campaign or a company that we've been helping workers advocate and talk about some of other issues at the workplace.
1: Okay. And uh, and William, tell us a bit about where you work and what you do there. How long have you been at an Amazon warehouse? And are you a contractor for Amazon or, or do you work directly for Amazon?
2: Uh, no, I'm a direct hire. Um, most of the people in my warehouse are direct hires. We just have temps right now for the holidays. But I've been there about a year and a half um, I'm a, an order picker and basically that means that so the merchandise is out on these storage pods uh, and a robot brings it to my station and I have to grab an item in a certain number of seconds, put it in a tote and send it down the line to the packing area.
1: Right. So as you're really timed closely and I, I want to get into that. Nemo, maybe you could tell us a bit about some of the gripes that have caused people to start to organize and, and talk amongst themselves at the worker center.
3: I've been doing this work um, for about a year and a half as well and starting in June uh, last year. Uh, We've been having a lot of communications with with, uh, workers in the community, um, East African folks in in particular, about um, mistreatment and concerns at these warehouses. Um, I remember last year, um, there was a bus that used to shuttle folks from Minneapolis. And, you know, when Amazon moved into Minnesota, they've they you know, they wanted workers to, to come to these warehouses and all of a sudden they've, you know, discontinued this bus. And a lot of folks were super um um, upset about this, and William is actually one, was one of the workers, and they've started a two hundred uh, worker petition, and they signed it, and they sent to, to Jeff Bezos in um, in Seattle. Um, as long as uh, there's also other um, issues around um, subcontracted comp- um, workers uh, uh, that were driving vans um, in Egan. we had a case uh, with a uh, East African worker. His name is D- Daniel Bae, He was subcontracted um, to deliver packages for Amazon, um, and he you know was listening to, Two, about about like two weeks of uh, work of, of wages and didn't even get that back. Um, and so he contacted our, uh, you know, our office and we got in contact and, you know, start to help him and figure out what was going on. Um, he's among um, other workers that were missing some wages at the subcontracted companies. And so after weeks of, you know, you know, protest and just um you know sending letters to these cup these companies that were working for Amazon, he won hundreds of dollars in uh in payback after fighting. And so in in the past of, of doing this work, we've met workers like Ant like William, who's been outspoken, um, Hibok, uh who's an, another outspoken um worker and who's also been featured in the New York Times um, about two weeks ago. And so workers are, you know, talking and having conversations about what are going on, what's going on in these warehouses. And, and we want to make sure that Amazon listens to them and make sure that these uh, things, things change for the better so that they can still continue to work and, and feed their families.
1: Right. William. tell me about this, this petition that, that you, you started. Uh, how did you kind of get this off the ground? Were you communicating on the buses? I mean, where, where were you able to kind of start to communicate with folks outside of the workday to, to get this? And what was the petition for?
2: Um, well, I, I should clarify, it, it wasn't just me, um, sure. but I, you know, I was definitely, uh, you know, upset when they got rid of that old bus, just because that was the whole reason I, I got this job, uh, not having a car myself. But yeah, it just started, uh, um, started a lot of conversations. started getting people thinking about like, you know, here's this, you know, very like tangible issue. Like we used to have, you know, great transportation to work um and now and the other problem too is they cut it just before the um the the winter of last year um and so people were concerned about safety i mean they amazon replaced it with uh by paying this other bus company to add an amazon stop to their route but overall the same trip takes twice as long uh but anyway yeah it just uh started conversations among workers about um, you know, this one particular issue in the workplace that seemed like, you know, pretty easy to support. But then, uh, you know, there are many other, you know, issues that people deal with day-to-day in the workplace. Like, you know, as far as myself and, you know, when I talk to the rest of my coworkers, the number one thing that most people seem to be concerned about is the scan rates. And so, like I said before, when I have to pick an item, I, yeah. I have to do that in a certain number of seconds and get a certain number of items per hour. And so the the items per hour that's the rate. And almost every department has a rate that you know always like just over the long term always goes up, never goes down. Um, and so they keep pushing people farther and farther. You know the the consequences of that is that you know just the time that I've been there, I've you know seen lots of friends of mine get injured. Um, and you know my warehouse, like it skews younger just because, you know, the work is so physically demanding. But even people who are, you know, in their, you know, 20s and 30s, um, you know, getting the kinds of injuries and having to worry about uh, pain in knees and shoulders and things like that, where people shouldn't have to be dealing with that so young, you know.
1: yeah. And so, how was it being addressed before i mean or let me step back. has Amazon been kind of demanding higher uh rates of productivity amongst uh amongst its workers have you have you seen more demands coming from Amazon to y'all and and have they just not been addressing uh the kind of you know workplace uh health concerns that people have brought up how how have they been addressing that and have you seen more uh them trying to squeeze more work out of people
2: so the first um like the the first time there were a, a lot of us workers coming together to raise concerns to management about rate was um, around Ramadan this past summer. So mm-hmm. the, you know, so my warehouse, there are a lot of um, Somali Muslim workers or, you know, same with the other Amazon warehouse in Minnesota and so warehouses in Minnesota. And so, um, if people don't know, um, when you're celebrating Ramadan, uh, people like fast all day long, no eating, no drinking, even water up until, I believe, until the sun goes down. And so you're still doing this very physically demanding job, having to meet these, you know, very fast rates. And so we, um, you know, a bunch of workers and I some people who are involved in the bus, some not, um, just coming together around the... like issues around Ramadan, just demanding like a, a a lower rate, like some time off for um, people to celebrate uh, the Eid, the big holiday at the end with their families Mm -hmm. um, and a nicer place to pray. Uh, And, you know, management's response was that the rate is the rate and that's the way it is. Uh, But we did, end up pushing them to so now there's a place where on Fridays um uh men uh men pray
1: and, you know, Nemo, I'm curious, uh, one of the things that about this organizing effort is that there has been um, reports of this being kind of a tight knit and very large community of uh, East African immigrants that are working at these warehouses. Uh, has that been kind of part of the success of organizing and that, you know, there's already kind of a community uh, amongst the workers that are outside of work?
3: Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Our main folk, like, so I'm an East African, I'm Somali, I'm an East African um, woman, and and so, yes, a lot of the workers that do work at these warehouses and at at Amazon are on um, a lot of, majority of them, not majority of them, but a lot of, like, a huge number makes up an East African community um, folks, and so what we were, um, what we've been able to do is basically um, uplift their voices and advocate and empower um, folks at, at these warehouses to understand that that you have you do have rights to talk about certain. Um, certain things like religious accommodation speaking your language when you're at the workplace um, if you feel as like you've been discriminated like what what does that mean and so we've been able to in the last year and a half we we've, we've had multiple um, know your rights, know your rights training so that we've uh, so the workers understand that their rights at the workplace and that it's okay um, to 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 talk about these things um, outside um, outside your work outside of work um, we do run our meetings in Somali um, and also in English um, we have an interpretation as well for for, for workers that don't speak Somali.
1: Has there been an issue with, uh, you know, some workers who maybe primarily speak Somali uh, having a difficult time communicating at work because there aren't perhaps managers that speak Somali at these warehouses, even though there is a large amount of workers that uh, that that speak that language primarily? Has that been an issue?
3: So in some some, um, uh, instances, we've had workers that um, so I'm not sure if you've there's there's been an action in Egan that happened in Ramadan. So it happened um, Mm -hmm. this year during the summer. Um, And a lot of the workers, you know, protested because there were you know really bad um, working conditions like heating wise people fainting because they you know could, they couldn't drink water and they're working extremely hard. And one of wow. the demands uh, and one of the one of the things that workers actually uplifted was hey there's a lot of you know East African workers that worked in this place but there's no there's no management or there's nobody that that can translate between these workers. And one uh, one when that workers are really happy about is that they've hired someone who can full time translate. I'm not sure about, I'm not sure about the time, but they've hired someone to translate and take surveys and kind of um, you know meet with them and talk with them. They've also uh, implement and put a uh, TV in the break room that's in English and Somali to translate some of the stuff, new updates. Um, and so even talking to workers, some workers feel um, that there needs to be change when it comes to hiring as well. Um, a lot of our uh, – in our management meetings with Amazon – workers have uplifted and talked about that we need to see diversity and reflective of, like, East East African workers inside the buildings as well. And I know William can speak on more about um, hiring and and promoting, but a lot of workers do talk about that there needs to be some kind of uh, um, level of interaction with the community to support the needs of, of these workers.
1: Right. So they can communicate. And, and to be clear, the, the organizing that's happening here isn't a union, right? This is a group working with Awud, uh, which is a nonprofit worker center and, kind of generally organizing around the large East African communities in the area and other workers uh, who who are with Amazon there. And uh, you guys are helping workers to organize and make collective demands, but, you know, not as a a union. And Amazon's been known to be anti-union and distribute materials to managers to help give them tools to discourage organizing. Um, I'm curious, has Amazon refused to meet with you all uh, or discouraged the organizing in any way? Uh, You know, this is to to either of you, uh, Nemo or William.
2: Amazon's approach has for the most part been, uh, uh, you know, sending managers to talk with workers, say like, Hey, if you have a problem, just, you know, bring it, you know, bring it to us. Um, you know, you don't have to, um, you know, you don't have to go someplace else. You don't, you know, and you know, now in recent weeks, like, Oh, you don't have to protest. Um, but I mean, the thing is, it's like, You know, I mean, they can they can say that. And, you know, if they say like, oh, don't uh," you know, or, you know, just bring your problems to management, bring your problems to HR. I mean, if the issue is you want a lower rate, well, I mean, you know, what are you going to (laughs) do? Like, you know, we had uh, two big meetings with um, uh, Amazon upper management for Minnesota back in September and uh, end of October. Um, where we talked about, uh, you know, the the issues at Amazon, things we wanted changed, um, you know, when it comes to, like, you know, rate, uh, unfair write-ups, unfair firings, uh, injuries, um, guaranteeing time off for Muslim religious holidays, investment in the community. And, uh, you know, and we haven't gotten a, a good response from them on, you know, any of the uh, like big substantial issues that we brought up, you know, they've they've made some, you know, some adjustments, but um, nothing nothing addressing the core issues. And so, you know, that's why we're gearing up for, uh, uh, you know, a protest on December fourteenth. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, they you know they keep saying like, oh, just come talk to us, and it's like we we did, you know. <laughs>
1: Right, right, and so uh, Nima, what what are some of the the core issues that are not being addressed?
3: Um. So, so like um, William was talking about, we've met with the management, and we facilitated. You know, these. Uh, you know, we've had workers. You know, in, this, in these in these meetings, with the upper management of, of Amazon in Minnesota, and workers were basically talking about creating a humane rate and workload. So. Um, Ending um, also kind of the unfair right of folks getting There's a lot of folks talk about firings as well, unfair firings that happen inside the buildings. Um, Folks also mentioned that there needs to be some kind of guarantee and um, that, like, employee and community concerns are heard and taken seriously by local management. Um, A lot of folks over the year have mentioned as well that Amazon needs to respect the cultures of, you know, the East African and Muslim workers. Um, There's also um, an issue about... uh, Workers, you know, being penalized for um, prayer breaks, and there's there's this thing called TOT, time off task. So if you're pray, if you're you know at your station um, working, and you know you step aside, you know they will you know deduct some, you know your rate will go lower because you're you, know, you stepped away from your your station, and that's something a lot of workers have have mentioned as well in our meetings, and also um, at this uh, in between management. Uh, between the Amazon worker meeting and management meeting September and October.
1: And so what do you guys hope to get out of this December 14th action? This is going to be a walkout or a protest. What do you hope to get out of it?
2: Uh, so some of the workers who are um, going to be there that day will be working and then walking out, but we'll have others who are um, showing up separately. Uh, you know, I mean, we're really hoping that Amazon makes a movement on uh, on these demands. Like, you know, the, the biggest one is, you know, being the, the rate that they just keep, uh, keep pushing our, you know, pushing our, our bodies and our minds, you know, it, to the limits, like psychologically, like that does something mm-hmm. to you when you gotta, you know, go every seven seconds. Um, and so, yeah. And so, but we also want to show the other workers who are feeling the same way. Um, but who are afraid to uh, to speak out, um, that, you know, that we've got, you know, a lot of community support behind us. You know, there are going to be other people coming who are not uh, Amazon workers, but just want to support workers. And, um, you know, like I said, I mean, we had these meetings with management and they weren't making the kinds of changes we want to see. So, um, you know, workers took a vote and we voted to to take
1: action. Right. and and uh Nemo for for you now finally I'm, I'm curious uh is ha, this been a scary prospect particularly for you know uh people who you work with who are, who are immigrants or or have come to the US as refugees and uh and maybe are, are worried about pushing back against uh you know a, a job
3: um so it's been a battle it's been an uphill battle and it's been there's been a lot of victories and a lot of successes within this campaign up for a year and a half there in the beginning stage it was extremely hard we've been like it was kind of like Beating against the wall, like the folks were not understanding. Like, wait, you can speak up. There's this, there's this huge barrier of like, um, you know, this is your, an authority. Like, you can't speak up, uh, you know, against this. You know, there's going to be some backlash. You're going to get fired for it. And what we've been able to do is, you know, hold these, you know, trainings um, and raise awareness of around workplace r- workplace rights. Um, and so, due time, you know, folks were understanding. Hey, I can speak up. Actually, one of our like one of our you know leaders was saying, I know I he like I used to be a, a kind a guy used to, like, stay quiet and never used to say anything. But now that I've been involved with the awards center, I'm able to stand up and speak out. And so what we've learned is that, you know, it takes time. But we've, we've learned that, you know, the Sikh community was Black, uh, predominantly, like, a Black Muslim community, immigrant, some, you know, folks, refugees who are new to the country. A lot of our core members and core leaders uh, core leaders are actually um, have been here not more than two years, and so being in a different country, not knowing the language strongly, but and the one thing that really you know makes me like makes me proud of doing this work is that when I hear them say, you know, we've we've left a war torn country, we've traveled, we've migrated, and we've come to a different country, but we're here to also stand up for our rights and make sure that. The other Amazonians and other people in this country know that we're not just, you know, pushovers. We're here to make change, and and that really gives me hope to see, like, you know, a marginalized community that's overlooked, like, over and over again in this country is, like, you know, doing the most, like, amazing work in, in right now in um in our times and it's demanding from like a trillion dollar, almost a trillion dollar company. So it's 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 amazing and and it's and it's super um moving to see to see this community do the work.
1: Yes. And and to to call attention to the work that goes behind so many of the online orders that are amassing now ahead of holiday season, Uh, really uh, exciting to watch and and look forward to continuing to follow this story. Nima Omar and William Stolz, thanks so much for joining us.
2: It was a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. All right. One final quick break, then we'll have Will back for Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. Okay, Will, uh, what tab could you not close this week?
0: My tab comes from the Pew Research Center, and this was a report that came out on uh, Monday, and the headline was, Social Media Outpaces Print Newspapers in the U.S. as a News Source. Now, I don't know what kind of surprise that might come as to people. I think some people would probably be surprised that social media is now more widely used as a news source than print. Some people might be surprised that it didn't happen a long time ago because we've been talking so much about the influence of social media on the news. But uh, this this is an important question, I think. We, there's a widely cited stat about like you know 50% of Americans get news from social media, but that's just people who say they ever get news. This is asking a different question, which is do you regularly get news um, from from this medium? And the percentage now for social media is about 20% of of U.S. adults saying they they regularly turn to it for news. Only 16% of U.S. adults now say they they turn to print newspapers for news on a regular basis. So that industry is it's slow death is is. Proceeding apace, the the biggest medium is still television, but that's come down from fifty seven percent to forty nine percent. April, I know you often talk about how we underrate TV news as an as an influential news source. It is still the the, the primary one for most Americans, and then below that, news websites at thirty three percent, which I guess is good news for Slate and uh, radio at twenty six percent.
1: One thing I'll say on this briefly is that like okay, that's how many people turn to radio for news, but. Something like over 90 percent of Americans, you know, in their teens and adults listen to radio every week. It's one of the most penetrating mediums and same for local television um, and television in general. Uh, and so, you know, I, I so interesting and I just uh, also want to be sure we we realize how these mediums are are used in other ways beyond news consumption um and and how like penetrating traditional media forms are uh that that aren't the internet um but that's that's a really interesting study uh for my tab this week I have a new long form piece from music writer Liz Pelly it's called stream bait pop and it's in the baffler and it's really interesting. I'm in the middle of reading it because it just came out today. But uh, it is about the homogenization of music that has occurred under streaming services and the attention economy and how when songs are kind of created to be placed in playlists as opposed to be kind of full albums or packages that artists can sell, but rather created to to be streamed, uh, what that's done to music and uh, and arguing that that it's kind of Homogenized music—that it's it's made, uh, kind of mu- a lot of music sound the same. Uh, one quote I want to read musical trends produced in the streaming area are inherently connected to attention, whether it's hard and fast attention grabbing hooks, pop drops, and chorus loops engineered for the pleasure centers of our brains, or music that strategically requires no attention at all the background music, the emotional wallpaper, the chill pop, sad vibe playlist fodder. These sounds and strategies all have stream bait tricks embedded within them. Whether they aim to wedge bits of a song into our skulls or just angle toward the inoffensive and mood-specific enough to prevent users from clicking away, all of this caters to an economy of clicks and completions— where the most precious commodity is polarized human attention, either amped up or zoned out, where success is determined almost in advance by data. Um, and basically it's just the argument that, that kind of the attention economy is uh, homogenizing art. And it's about how the structure through which we listen to and patronize the arts in uh, drastically changes that art. Um, and, and the economics behind that changes that art. Uh, and so I look forward to finishing it. I'm almost done. Uh, but I think it's really important that we, critically look at how uh, the economics of how we consume, you know, creativity invariably changes and morphs that and, and perhaps even dampens it.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's important to look critically about about how the attention economy shapes art. I will say I have a lot of confidence in artists to, to in the long run, resist homogenization. I mean, this is what sure. artists are good at is, is fighting back against homogenization. So but I have no is, doubt we'll see the backlash to this as well.
1: But this is about like what becomes popular and what's served to us um, and kind of when we hand over the ability um, the 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 picking of music that we listen to to playlists and and to algorithmic curators, right? Like what's being served to us is it the lowest common denominator that everybody is most likely to enjoy, right, or something like that? And
0: right, and this and this this term streambait pop. I'm not sure if the, this article coined it or if it's been coined before, but I think it's specifically referring to like a subgenre of music that's designed not to distract you right when you start streaming it on spotify it's going to be as inoffensive as it can so that you don't want to change it and and thus rob the artist of their of the money they get for each completed listen
1: right or is this all music that's we're supposed to be able to work to at our computers at our desks alone right music that kind of facilitates uh, our own attention capture and and our uh you know, lack of kind of uh, socializing in music and going out and listening to more difficult, interesting things. Um, You know, are we all kind of being channeled in a certain way to listen to art in a certain way? And so uh, I look forward to finish reading this. I do recommend people pick it up as well. I've really enjoyed what I've read so far. And, guys, we have one extra tiny tab from uh, from our producer, Max. We love it when he has something to share. Max, what do you have open on your computer screen, on your web browser this week?
4: Well, since we're talking about art and technology, I had to jump in. Have either of you seen the new movie, Roma?
1: No, but it's one of the few new movies that I've actually heard about. So, what is I basically
4: it? never get to see new, new yeah. movies, so so no. Also, no. I just
1: have to read a lot. That's my job. <laughs>
4: So it's a new movie um, by Alfonso Cuaron, the director who did Gravity, right. Children of Men, Y Tu Mama Tambien.
1: I really want but, to see this movie then.
4: Yeah. Well, and so it's really interesting. Netflix, it's a Netflix movie, mm. and it's coming out on Netflix later this week. But part of the deal in order to get Oscar buzz and such was they agreed to put it out in theaters for a short time. So it's out right now, and I saw it, and it just... If you're able to go see it, if you can afford to go see it, I highly recommend going to see it in theaters. Um, So I'm actually recommending you close the tab entirely, go to the movie theater. You can watch it later on Netflix, but at least once if you can experience it in theaters. It's like such a beautiful movie and I was... uh, Yeah, I was very moved by it. So that's my
1: recommendation. Oh, I'm excited for a film recommendation. Yeah, I think I I will check it out. Thanks, Max. And that actually does it for our show this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod.
0: You can also email us at ifthenatslate.com. This is the part where I usually say send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, just say hi. But actually, I'm going to go back to our earlier call. Send us your answer to those questions that we asked earlier. We would love to hear from you and and potentially feature your response on our show.
1: Yeah, share with us what you think. You can follow me and Will on Twitter. I'm at April Laser and Will is at Will
0: And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or whatever other platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time.
1: If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is the wonderful Max Jacobs. And thanks to Cody Hamilton for engineering here in Berkeley, California.
0: Thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studio in Newark, Delaware. We'll see you next week.
1: Bye, guys.